Hey, Paul, it's time to talk about blood, man. There's a lot out there. I think we should get to it. Let's do it. All right, man. I'm excited to talk about blood. It kind of follows up well after our T-Tri-C talk last month. Um, so let's talk about the origins of blood and where, where that came from and why we want to use blood. Well, Paul, we know blood's the new cool thing, right? But uh, when you really sit back and think about it, it's not all that new. Uh, it's definitely cool. But uh, what we talked about in our previous episodes, we talked about these walker dips where we lose experience at the end of war as people retire, pass away. Um, and so you end up with all this knowledge that just is lost to the organization and is lost to medicine. Um, in certain cases like this, uh, we, we lose that and it takes a big war coming back on for it to be relearned. And that's really what happened to us here in the global war on terrorism. Early in the wars, we started to do the blood transfusions. We started uh, kind of started first with component therapy going to one to one to one ratio and then to, to moving into the whole blood. Um, now, today, that's pretty much the standard. Uh, but uh, early in the GWAT, that was that was getting moving. And so surgical capabilities were doing walking blood banks on their camps and pulling units of fresh whole blood. They started to store whole blood and they started to do some research on it. You started to see that. Um, that kind of culminated in 2009 for on the conventional side when a battalion PA and a roll one within fourth ID had a casualty that they could not evac. There was a critical surgical wounded and uh, they medevac was black they couldn't get rotary wing in to get this kid out and get him to surgical asset and he was this i believe he was stuck on the ground for about eight hours and the role one provider had uh, seen a class in tcmc had had a class on and doing threshold blood transfusions and actually had to go out and get his cpd bags out of the trash under fire and brought him back in and ended up transfusing four units from his medics and himself into this patient over several hours um, keeping them alive, keeping them uh, going along, and then getting them out to surgery finally when nightfall and the rotary wing was able to get it out. He did a case report on that in 2014 detailing the incident from 2009, and uh, that really was like that, that opened our eyes. and was like, oh, my gosh, there's, you know, like we, we, we don't think of this, and particularly JTS doesn't think about this uh, in the TC3 realm just necessarily all the time, that um, resuscitation is something we do in the role one. You know, it's really more like bandage, stabilize, and move to onward. But in the fight that we're looking at doing, which is not the GWAT fight, when we talk about large-scale combat operations, prolonged evacuation times, ground evacs to surgical capability, you know, the, not, not what we experienced for the last 20 years where you have an injury and rotary wing medevac is on station within 20, 30 minutes picking up your patient. We're talking about a different fight. In this case, this particular set of interims, um, circumstances kind of highlighted for us that this still does exist as a requirement. And so that should that should pique your interest as a PA and say, oh, my God, I, I might have to do threshold blood transfusions on my patients, particularly as we talk about prolonged field care and those kind of things with our surgical patients and, and delays in medevac and, you know, fighting an enemy that has uh, near peer capability. And we don't own air superiority where we can't put a helicopter on scene to pick up your patient. So uh, get your hand on that case report. It's in our it's in our notes. Uh, but. Um, from there, uh, that, that was in 2009, case report 2014, and then we kind of moved into this uh, this um, pathway where it's soft and Ranger Regiment were working on some stuff and doing doing more of this threshold blood transfusion stuff. And actually, some good data came out and showed us that uh, more so than doing type specific, which is what happened with that battalion PA in 2009, uh, that we could start looking at low titer O. And so in that case, we're hey, we're just going to identify folks that have low antibody titers and use them as the first donation for threshold blood and that will avoid transfusion risk that way. That culminated in 2019 in AFRICOM 
with a 68 Whiskey Whiskey One Ranger Medic who was treating a point of injury uh, explosion and, and severely injured uh, patient. And that Ranger Medic had on his person four units of cord, cold stored whole blood that he immediately transfused and activated a walking blood bank at the point of injury. Collected three units at the point of, of wounding. Uh, Medivac came in, picked up that patient, uh, got a couple more units in flight. I think by the time they arrived at the surgical capability, that patient had already had 10 units put on board, which is in a massive transfusion protocol uh, anywhere else in the world and in our trauma system. So that's um, that's pretty cool uh, that because uh, that guy's alive today only because of, of the treatment he received at point of injury. There's just no way that that patient survives if, if blood's not going in immediately. And so now we're at this point uh, where after relearning these lessons, we know the best thing we can possibly do for somebody is FDA approved cold stored low titer O whole blood. Uh, after that, we just, we go to fresh whole blood or component therapy, depending on what we have available. And we do that in a low titer O specific uh, uh, desire. Um, and then kind of last thing we do is to start talking about type specific if we've run through everything else. And so um, lesson relearned uh, in the global war on terrorism. And, and as I mentioned before, like now we're slipping into a walker dip after the global war on terrorism. We got to kind of retain this knowledge and keep it going. So you said something, man, like somebody had fresh whole blood or stored blood products. You know, a medic had stored blood products. So how do we get to yeah. that level of care right so a my medics are still carrying you know i'm fighting to get them all to carry some basic normal saline right because uh, you know we can get into a conversation about normal saline chrysloids colloids versus blood but how do i get them to the point where blood is what's in their bags first thing i'd recommend you do is is get the colloids and crystalloids out of the bag but more importantly than getting them out of the bag because there's a narrow window for where they fit and things that we use them for is to get it out of your your medic's head that we use colloids and crystalloids to improve blood pressure and hemorrhagic shock because that improved blood pressure is an absolute lie. Your patient's dying in front of you and, and that blood pressure is going to maybe give you this false sense of reassurance that it's not as bad as it is. It's actually worse than you realize. Um, crystalloids, colloids do not carry oxygen. There are no clotting factors in there and there's no platelets. And those are the things that our hemorrhagic patients, our hemorrhagic shock patients need. And so blood's really the only thing that can give us those. Uh, and so um, get those out. Make sure that your medics understand that, why you're taking the, the colloids and the crystalloids away from them. There's, there's a narrow window for using colloids and trauma. Uh, but back here in the role three, post-surgical and surgical, if I want some colloid action, um, those are not the ones I'm going to. I'm using other things to, to drive that osmotic pressure and the different things that colloids would do. As far as mixing drugs and those kind of things, priming lines, absolutely, you have a little bit for that. And if you're trying to temporize and buy yourself some time uh, by getting access and using a little bit of saline to do so, it, I, I get it. You just got to be aware of the risks associated with that. And you got to know that in your heart of hearts that your t the clock's ticking. You need to get that blood. Uh, so once you do that, then you can start focusing on the training, right? And so there's two parts of this training. One, you need buy-in. And then second uh, thing that you need to know is you, you're going to have naysayers come at you that are going to tell you it's not safe, that you don't need to do it, that medics shouldn't be doing it. And so um, that's that's where I would take you. As far as getting buy-in, uh, there's a fantastic resource out there on Next Generation Combat Medic that uh, has put together a how to talk to your medical director about threshold blood transfusions. And so I encourage you go to their website, download that, take a look at it. It's got all the resources you could possibly need to argue your point and get advocacy for doing this kind of training. And so if you're a brigade surgeon or uh, anybody else that you're working with is, is um, concerned about this, this is a fantastic resource to get them on board. And so I encourage you to do that. 
that will also help with the, the naysayers. Okay. So then uh, there you're going to find probably the best way to do this, right, is autologous threshold blood transfusions because it's two-part training, right? You're getting the medic training on sticking and doing the collection. And then if you're, if you're deliberate about it, they're going through and doing all the checks and stuff that they need to do before they put the blood on board, you know, like make sure, have I collect, do, do I have my vials? Do I have my, my 572 sheet? Is this the correct patient? Have I done a couple patient identifiers before I go shoving this in? Um, and so that's, that's really what we're talking about is this autologous gives you is that two part training. Uh, so, but you have to be safe with it. I'm not going to pretend that this isn't it. I, I will tell you it's a safe procedure. I will tell you there are, there are places where you can make this an unsafe procedure and you need to be aware of them. Not the least of which is anytime you stab somebody, you know, you're going to have bagel events. They're going to feel nauseous, not feel well. They could potentially have a reaction to some of the stuff in the, in the, in the uh, CPD bag. Um, they could have an allergic reaction, uh, and then uh, the worst thing you could possibly do is, is take the blood out of one person and put it back into a different person. Um, and so you have to be very deliberate and make sure you check off and have those safety mechanisms in place for those kind of things. Um, that said, within the Next Generation Combat Medic website, there is also a fantastic report by some guys that have been working in the soft side training some of the 68 Whiskey Ones and some of the 18 Deltas that account for thousands upon thousands of these autologous flexual blood transfusions uh, and minimal adverse side effects. And they actually delineate the ones that they've had. And uh, the most common one they're going to experience and, and that they explain is some perioral tingling, maybe a metallic taste in their mouth, maybe some tingling in their fingertips, and uh, but but nothing extensive. And I think there's some some basal bagel events that occurred in there too. But take a look at that report and have that as your backup and use that to do your deliberate risk assessment worksheet. The risks really are I screw up and give somebody somebody else's blood and cause a, a, a some kind of a reaction or hemolysis. Potentially, there's a there is a potential for like a citrate allergy, but if you keep some Benadryl on hand uh, and, and maybe an EpiPen, that'll probably be enough to to combat that until you can get them to the ER. Uh, and then I guess the 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 third point here is to have a draw that actually lays out realistic um criteria for when we're going to bail on training right so if if i've got two bags in my hand and i don't know who they came from throw them the hell out we're not giving them back the risk is too high um it, do we have an example draw that we can either put up on the website or uh, if people want to email us we can send back to them you bet paul we'll go ahead and slap one together and if anybody emails us wants a copy of it we'll certainly do that um, my recommendation, absolutely, Benadryl and epinephrine are great things to have. I'd also maybe recommend some steroids and some airway care devices just in case. I think that's a, a significant risk, but that's reasonable. Uh, also have some crystalloids uh, if, if you do somehow manage to screw up and mix up the blood uh, and put it in the wrong person, which I really hope you don't do. Um, running and flushing uh, some fluids is going to be your friend there as well. So, but have all those things in place, uh, know how to activate your EMS and when you're going to, when you're going to activate those. Um, again, I tell you, look back at that, that next gen combat medic for the data. Um, but the one big thing, the critical can't miss event is, is if you are doing multiples of these, so you've got, you know, two or more up to six, 20 people that are doing threshold blood transfusions at the same time is marking that bag and making sure you have the safety mechanisms to confirm before you open that that uh, that lineup and start running blood back into them. It needs to be their own blood and you can't screw that up. Um, assuming that they have a successful donation event, so they, they donated and they received their autologous blood transfusion back, they're right back in your donor pool and ready to go. And so I think that that's, that's fantastic. Um, the CPD that's in the bag gets consumed within minutes. Um, there is some thought process that, uh, um, you, you come out of the donor pool for 56 days. I had someone tell me, I, I don't agree with that at all. 
I was like, absolutely not. They're like, well, what if you didn't get all your blood back? And I was like, that's that's ridiculous. If they don't get all their blood back, sure, certainly you can have some argument discussion about that. But um, the one thing I will offer you is if you're in a donation window where you actually would need to pull off your low tighter rows, I would tell you do not train on your low tighter rows because you don't want to mess up. You don't want to draw a half a unit out or a half unit off somebody and not get it all back into them. Uh, and then lose them from your donor pool for the next 56 days. And that, that would be the most responsible, safest thing to do. Just a point of clarification here, what I'm talking about is whether or not you get a full unit out and mix it with the CPD and whether or not you get a full unit back into the person you're donating from. Those are two different problems, right? So if you're drawing blood off somebody and you can only fill about half the bag, then recommendation is waste a bag and consider them to have donated and not be available for the next 56 days. That's, that's a half unit of blood. You don't really know how much of that blood they lost. You don't know what their iron stores are. Now that's being precautious and that's okay. Uh, similarly, if you've got a full unit of blood out of them and you mix the right amount of CPD and blood and you were putting it back in for some use and loss of line or couldn't get it to go in, uh, I would tell you just go again, waste that bag, add them to the having they have donated list and defer them for the 56 days until they can replenish their iron stores. Uh, certainly some room for discussion there, but I will tell you that's the safest way to do it. And that's my recommendation. So back to the discussion of your low titer O's and training with them for autologous blood training. Right now here in theater, I am absolutely not training on my low titer O's. I've got some inexperienced folks that we're kind of working with. They're, they're building their experience. And so we're training on uh, one of the 700,000 A positives that I have running around the camp. And that's what I would encourage you to do is just take a look and see where your, your thickest density is. And then ask those people to volunteer as your low titer or as, as your simulated low titer O blood draws for autologous transfusion training um, until you're confident. You, you really don't want to burn a low titer O uh, accidentally. So we have my medics have run through the mystic. I, as a new PA who probably hasn't seen blood or done blood, ran through the mystic. I'm now T for trained. Good to go. I'm feeling confident. How do I get like what labs are required? What can I do to screen my force to start establishing this program within the within the battalion? Well, the first thing I'd recommend is use your your post blood donation center. They know what to do. You just roll in, set up with them to do a TMDS, low titer O screen. They know already what infectious diseases to screen for. They know how to load up all the information. That's gonna be the easiest way. I do recommend that you do that at least six to eight weeks prior to deploying so that you can get that data and have it with you before you go. Um, if you butt up closer to your deployment, you potentially don't have that information. You're gonna be trying to communicate via email. If you come into theater and try and screen in theater, you're going to add uh, some prolonged shipment times, right? Because all that stuff has to get sent back into San Antonio and the area there to get uploaded into TMDS. And, uh, and that's what we're experiencing right now. We did a, a whole bunch of our pre-screen uh, from theater. And so we're losing four to six weeks before we see the TMDS results and we know who they are. Fortunately, our lab officers kind of leaning forward and helping to pre-screen them. He's doing some uh, infectious disease screening at, at the roll three as well as titering them. So it's really more confirmatory at TMDS, but there is some stuff that he can't do and it has to be done at, T at the TMDS level back in San Antonio. And so uh, you have to be aware of that. Um, once you have your your low titer list, uh, uh, there's a couple of different techniques out there. Um, one, again, I recommend if you're in the window, you're going to need them potentially. Don't train on them. Don't do autologous blood transfusion training on your low titer rows. But uh, I got a friend out in the 25th ID kind of getting this this program uh, ramped up out there. And once they have their low titer rows, they actually sit them down in the 4856 and counsel them and tell them, hey, when, when it gets real, when I'm going to need blood, you're going to be the first person I call. So I need you to be a responsible person. 
I can't, I, I'm going to ask you, please don't go out and have unprotected sex with a whole bunch of people putting you at risk for infectious diseases. Um, please don't, you know, use, uh, you know, IV drugs, you know, obviously notwithstanding the moral and ethical problems that that creates within our organization, uh, puts you at a higher risk of those infectious disease process. So um, really just kind of letting them know, highlighting to those people, hey, you're, you're my go-to guy when, uh, when I need blood and I'm, you're going to be the first person I call and, and uh, I want you to be ready when that happens. What's the definition of low titer? It's as simple as this, Paul. Uh, o blood types, they've never really been exposed to other antibodies and tested against the, or excuse me, antigens. And so what you're counting is the number of antibodies of anti-A and anti-B in their blood. And a whole bunch of O blood type folks never really develop any antibodies consistent with anti-A, anti-B. And those are your low titer O's. So some people do, and those are your high titer O's, and those guys should be deferred. You don't want to use high titer. That means they have a whole bunch of antibodies, and you increase your risk of transfusion reaction. Originally, we thought you needed to be retitered every 90 days. And when the rollo started, uh, the regiment was doing that. They would titer them before deployment and titer them again along the way. Uh, so now uh, that that progressed into titer once, and it's good for a year. And now actually our data is showing us your titer doesn't clinically, that doesn't move enough to be clinically significant. And so you're considered a low titer for life. And that's in the memorandum from the, the to the TCMC from the ISR. Uh, dated in August 2019. It's also reflected in the JTS CPG for TC3, which is updated, um, but not necessarily updated in all of them. So get your hands on that memo again. Make sure you look at the JTS TCCC CPG and you'll see that low titer for life. I guess we've got two scenarios that we need blood in, right? So we've kind of trained, we've identified our guys as uh, uh, O low titer. And now I've got two scenarios. I've got medics who are going out on mission who we don't want them carrying normal saline. We don't want them carrying Hexton because that stuff's garbage. Um, sorry, Hexton. I, I I don't know if that's a trademark thing. Um, and okay. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I've got my roll one scenario, right? Where I'm going to have just a list of dudes walking around. Um, so on my medics, are how do we get them to carry this blood, right? Like, are they able to, like, do we need a cooler? How long can they carry it? Um, are they, you know, walking around with that giant, bright red cooler that we've got here in garrison or, or is there some other way that we can move blood around the battlefield oh you're gonna have to forgive me man actually i don't know what they're carrying it in um particularly the dismounts i know they're carrying cold store low titer old whole blood i'm sure it's not a big old dumb red case that they've got something tactical i imagine it looks something similar to what the rotoring medevac vampire bags look like um but i don't I, it's been a hot minute since i've been around those organizations and and know what they're actually carrying but uh they are they do have something rigged up to carry it into a, in a rucksack raid bag if they're carrying those four units um nevertheless uh if you collect fresh whole blood uh, it, within 24 hours it has to be cold stored and so you get 24 hours in the bag as it sits before you have to worry about getting it uh, refrigerated to us. so um, once it goes into refrigeration, depending on which CPD product you're running uh, is how long you can store it. CPD lasts for 21 days and CPD one alpha lasts for 35 days. Um, there are organizations that are drawing off blood from, from people before big missions. Uh, they are avoiding their, their, their war fighters, like their trigger pullers, right? They're uh, kind of looking back at some FOB support personnel, uh, folks that aren't at risk of being injured and wounded and already down a unit from donation. Um, so those are those are their prime low titer O folks are kind of the support pools that uh, that that are low titer as well. Um, but the, be, be aware of this. There have been some organizations, some role ones that are like, oh, we're going to pull low titer O and store it at, at our place. Um, I, I caution you against this behavior. Uh, I'll tell you that um, you probably don't have the appropriate refrigerator, probably don't have the experience managing it. 
and it's really more risky than it's worth, um, I would encourage you instead to really look at rehearsing your stuff. Um, but when you're doing autologous blood transfusion, I know it says 24 hours before it's got to be cold stored. My intent when I train is that it goes back in the same person within an hour and uh, not, not any longer. Um, some people will uh, uh, draw and then uh, the mission goes out, mission comes back, and then they'll retransfuse back in. I'm a fan of retransfusing back in. I consider you back in the donor pool. But you want to be uh, aware and cautious of those kind of things. Just be aware of what your colleagues are doing and, and uh, don't, um, don't go down a path that's foolish. You're going to get yourself uh, uh, pinched in a, in a bad way is what I would tell you. So the Norwegians did a study, took their, their soft guys, <laughs> ran them through an obstacle course, uh, timed them, did a bunch of metrics, took a unit of blood off them, ran them through the same obstacle course, um, and they had very minimal impact on functionality. Now, once you got over that one unit, then yeah, you got hit pretty hard. And then the second piece you nailed, I think the Rangers are doing it right now where uh, if they're going out on mission, they might take a unit of blood off of their Pogue kid that's sitting back at the FOB, uh, but they're not taking off their, their gunfighters that's going out on the mission. Hey, Paul, I just want to point something out here, too. We haven't, we haven't actually said this deliberately, but I want to make sure we know this, right? Uh, we are the subject matter expert from the medical realm and the pre-surgical, the, the TC3 piece, right? Um, once they hit surgery, that's somebody else, generally, unless you're an LTHET-trained PA that's uh, you work in gen surge or ortho or an ERPA. But when where we exist within the role one and the, the brigade sport medical company role two, there's very little we can do, right? You recognize that your skill sets are, are limited by your your own experience and what you have in your MES kits, right? Um, but what you can do is stop bleeding, pack bleeding, uh, relieve tension, physiology in the chest and secure the airway. And then really, this is that next piece is that you're, you're starting the damage control resuscitation piece. You're pouring blood into this person to keep them alive. Um, we saw that again with that 2009 case report. Like the only thing that, that uh, is going to get these people to surgery is being stabilized with blood. You know, you can, if you, if you try to fall back on crystalloids, get blood pressure up, you're, they're, they're dying in front of you again with, with a, a, an improved blood pressure, but they're still dying. And so you're trying to temporize to get them to surgery because the knife is the only thing that's going to fix them is opening that belly, going in and getting that bleeder and stopping it so that uh, you can fill the tank back up is all that is all that you can do. In the 2009 study, uh, the, the PA there had to use four units to temporize to get the patient to surgery, right? In 2019 case report, we talked about that Ranger medic ended up using seven units, all four that he had on board. Uh, of his cold stored. And that really was buying him time to mobilize his walking blood bank. And so while he was transfusing those four units, the walking blood bank was getting going, gave him the other three units. And the point that I want to make to you is that, because uh, that was a, one of the, the, the first threshold blood point of injuries was that that guy, again, got massive transfusion, massive transfusion protocol before he arrived to the surgical asset, took 189 units of blood product to get that guy stabilized and out of theater. Of that, 60 units were fresh whole blood. So 60 individual donors lined up and gave fresh whole blood to get that guy moving um, at different places. And that some of that was a point of injury. Some of that was at the damage control surgery location and so on and so forth along his path of evac. But um, that's a huge success story. And you can see that one patient can deplete entire theaters uh, worth of blood supply. Um, and if the environment's right, which it was for him, that you could do that, then so be it. And so, but that 60 units of threshold blood should, should peak your eye and to, uh, tell you like, Hey, this is, this is where this fits. I was a medic for a long time and I'll be honest, man, like trying to carry blood or blood components is, is a challenge when you're out running around. 
Um, you know, that that's why I, I think it's reasonable for medics to carry, you know, one or two units of uh, 500 ml bags of, of normal saline because trying to get a walking blood bank program going, there was a study that was done even in a hospital with trained providers who knew it was coming. It still took them about 17 minutes before they were able to get the blood program activated and get that blood in there. So it, it's not unreasonable. The other thing with normal saline is is when you're running that blood, you're going to run it with normal saline. You can't run it with lactated ringers. You can't run it with Hexten. You can't run it with anything else. It's got to be normal saline. Um, so I, I think if we can get blood on people, that's great. Um, one of the other products that's out there that I think it's still in development to get it out of the big glass bottles is some uh, freeze-dried plasma. You know, we've got options that are out there that are, are maybe... I don't want to say simpler, right? Because I don't want to deter people from trying to get blood <laughs> on their guys. Because obviously blood is the best thing that we can give to people. But man, sometimes like the, the logistics of my guys who go on patrol once a month and maybe they're going to maybe see some combat and maybe, right? Like with where we're at in the war right now, you know, how much blood are we putting out in the on our medics back that we don't recover and we don't use? Um, and my medics don't train on enough because they're busy patrolling or, or watching the gate or whatever else they've got going on. Focusing it, you know, for, especially for the new PA, maybe the role one is where blood really kind of takes off. And that's where we, we have these Rolo programs. Um, I've seen guys use like a binder system. So, you know, pre-deployment, they get all of their guys run through, they get all the labs done. They're identified. Maybe they're given like a big giant red card that says you are a uh, low tighter and then they know. Right. And so then you've got your platoon sergeant who's teed up um, and, and is involved in training because you've gotten on your BC's calendar and said medical is something that's important for everybody to train. Um, and so when you activate that yeah. blood bank protocol, um, it's not you, it's, Hey, platoon sergeant, first sergeant, I need you to get this name. Let's, let's open up the binder. And here's the first dude on the list. Go get that guy and have them come in. And I want 10 guys lined up outside the door waiting for when I'm done with that dude so that I can just keep drawing units until I'm done. So again, with the normal sailing, what I, what I just want to say is like, make sure you understand what you're using it for, right? Uh, the if you're temporizing for your access before the vessels collapse and you that's what you're trying to get it on board for so that you can just get a saline lock in I'm all for that but uh, be, be aware diluting the blood is something kind of dangerous uh, in this setting and then blood's really the only answer now you got to do what you got to do to get your patient temporized to get the blood um, but we generally want to avoid putting in uh, crystalloids and colloids in this in this setting um, 17 minutes I, I believe it man uh, 17 minutes when, when they know it's coming like they should be very concerning I'll tell you where I am right now, that when we flick the switch, we're talking 45 minutes before the first unit is handed to bedside. Um, and that's a, that's a long time. And that includes mobilizing, calling out to the people, getting them to come, getting the walking blood bank folks set up, uh, getting the 572 filled out, the vitals completed, all the kind of stuff, that, the safety stuff that goes on. 45 minutes is a good day, probably more like an hour, 10, hour, 15 before that unit. But the news, the news uh, on my side is a little better because I'm sitting in a roll three where I've got units of blood to temporize with while I get that walking blood bank. So to me, that says, you know, I'm about an hour away from depleting my stockpiles that I'm, I'm activating that walking blood bank. 
um, you don't have that down there in rule one, right? You, you don't have anything to temporize with. You're, you're going to have to flip that switch and go from there. Uh, so absolutely carry, carry normal saline, maybe freeze dyed plasmas coming together. Um, but as you mentioned, man, a binder is, is a genius way to kind of get these things going. What you're looking for is minutes to shave off this process to, to save time. The most important aspect of that saving time piece is what I'm going to tell you is, as you mentioned, you got to get those non-clinical folks. Like, so here for us at the Roll 3, I'm using people that don't have a role in the mass cal plan, don't have a role in the, the trauma bed activation, right? So I've got, you know, med log specialists and med maintenance people here that uh, come crashing in. I actually use the veterinarian. Uh, it's pretty handy in, in some of these aspects. Um and so they run it for me. But the most important plan is whatever, whatever or most important part of your plan is, whatever it is, is you got to rehearse it with realism. And I mean it down to a gnat's butt as far as the realism. Uh, so if you if you tell yourself you have a plan and you haven't rehearsed it to the point of getting the blood out with the vials and the, the papers and everything else, then you're kidding yourself. And you should absolutely, whoever you have that's capable of doing that, that is going to alleviate you of having to do it so you can focus on the treatment you're providing uh, do, do it. Absolutely do it. And then again, um, one more time with the giving the, the blood back. I'm a huge fan. I, I want you're the reservoir. If you're the donor, like I want to, I'm going to put the blood back into you, uh, particularly if I'm dying in your situation where I don't have the, the knowledge capability or equipment to actually cold store it myself. Um, I'm going to get it out of you. I'm going to realize that uh, I don't have the mechanism to store it or keep it. Um, and if it doesn't go into a patient in need, it's going right back into you for you to keep it warm for me until I need it the next time. One of the last things we talk about is actually how to just get this thing started, right? And so what I want you to know is that there are, there are folks out there at different bases that are kind of blood champions. You know, this isn't anything that, uh, that, that they're wearing a name tag. They're not on orders to be the blood champion. They're just people that believe in this. And so you want to reach out to them. If you don't know who they are at your camp, uh, whatever, whatever base you happen to be at, um, reach out to Grandpa. Grandpa knows a bunch of them uh, by name and can get you guys linked up. And uh, what I'll tell you is, you know, I know the the Blood Champion Fort Hood. I know the Blood Champion Fort Bragg. I know the Blood Champion Schofield Barracks. Um, you you just need to link up with that Blood Champion, that 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 smart person who's done all this reading and is and has uh, done all this autologous transfusion training to show you how to do it. If you're not comfortable doing it in your battalion aid station, you need to get comfortable, find that guy, and go for it in that direction. When you say yeah. blood vials. You're talking about if I get my giant vampire kit, it's got like a, a pile of little blood tubes in the bottom. Um, that normally go in the trash, but you're talking about getting those off of your donor in order to make sure that they <laughs> go forward for further testing, right? Paul, you're killing me, man. Yes, please get those things out of the trash and fill them with the donor's blood. Uh, that, that really is the only mechanism we have to test and check to see if anybody got anything. Now, even if you pre-tested and pre-cleared them through TMDS before you deployed, you know, there's an interval gap and I don't know what your guys are up to or which folks are, uh, but any, any, communicable disease that could have been transmitted in between. Preferably the blood is collected from the donor, immediate pre-donation, so the actual conditions of the blood are known at the time. Now that's difficult, I get it, your knees are in the dirt and you're like, I don't have time for that crap, and so you throw it in the garbage. So just do me a favor out there in the, the roll one, roll two land, get those things out of the garbage, fill them with the donor's blood, try to get an individual label with the name uh, of the patient and the DOD ID. If you throw them all in a bag, slap a piece of three inch tape on it with a name and DOD ID, I get it. 
uh, the actual best case scenarios described in the JTS CPG, and it says labels on all the vials filled with blood, 572 filled out, and the Eldon card or, or whatever the CPG exactly says, but it basically that's the best case scenario. Um, when that stuff arrives to the Roll 3 or the EVAC center, whether it's a, a Roll 2 FRST or FRSD, we're up to the Roll 3. Basically, I'm going to go over in the corner once I clear my trauma bay and start digging through all that paperwork and trying to help our lab officer establish who gave what blood, uh, who came, who it came from, and then start that testing process to see if there were any communicable diseases and those kind of things. And so you got to give us a fight chance with that. So please do give us that fight chance. I have one more question for you. Uh, besides blood, so for how how many units of blood is there? Anything else that I need to be giving? Like, are we are we talking calcium every third unit? Am I preloading with a gram of calcium? Like, what's the what's the calcium protocol? So what has come out now is a little bit confused in the CPGs because different CPGs say different things depending on when they were revised. But uh, long story short, the T's the T triple C CPG, which covers this, uh, is actually updated and was updated uh, per a memorandum that came out in August 2019. That memorandum is uh, listed in our show notes. Uh, you're welcome to email me for a copy of it, but it is in the TC3 CPG and it recommends this. You need calcium upfront. Uh, as soon as you decide you're going to give blood, and it actually is best uh, before the citrated blood products go in, um, but after TXA. So our recommendation is TXA. TXA dosing is upfront uh, and two grams now. It used to recommend one gram in the first 10 minutes, or sorry, one gram over 10 minutes within the first three hours, and then a second gram within the first eight hours. Uh, but that's been updated. We are now recommending, and this JTS CPG recommends two grams IVIO slow push, not required over 10 minutes. And they say slow push, but really everybody out there is doing a fast push. They don't care. There's this theoretical risk of hypotension. It's a theoretical risk. Nobody's really observed it. People are starting to push the boundaries on this and giving it fast IV push. Um, if you're not sure, give it the two grams over a slow IV push. That's totally fine. Follow it up immediately with one gram of calcium. You got a couple options here on calcium. You have calcium gluconate or calcium chloride. Calcium chloride is a smaller dose. It's only 10 mLs of 10% calcium chloride, but that calcium actually burns. And so if you give it in a peripheral IV, you're going to get some sclerosing, burning, and some risk of tissue damage if your IV infiltrates. Um, so the actual calcium gluconate is 30 mLs of 10% calcium gluconate, and that can be given IV, IO, in a peripheral. It's a little bit bigger dose, a little bit of a pain in the butt to draw three different vials of calcium gluconate, um, but that's actually probably the safer one now. You give a single dose calcium chloride through a peripheral IV. Is that a big problem? No, probably not. Uh, you just want to be wary, be aware of it. You shouldn't get in the habit of giving calcium chloride and peripheral IV repetitively. And then the other aspect of this is once you give that, that's before the first unit of, of blood product, then you're going to give another gram of calcium, either one of the two, every four units that you, you give uh, uh, to the patient. So if you end up giving five, you've probably given two doses of calcium chloride. Uh, calcium gluconate or calcium chloride. Okay, but a uh, solid question and just be aware that some of the other JTS CPGs, like particularly the um, uh, threshold blood transfusion or sorry, the pre-hospital blood transfusion CPG hasn't been updated since before that memorandum from uh, or two TC3 came out from the JTS. So uh, it still recommends the old dosing and be aware your medics may still be getting taught the old dosing. So get that fixed with them. All right, Paul, I think I've kept you out of clinic long enough. Time for you to go and make some RVUs. Hey, man, I appreciate everything you got, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again next month. God, I love clinic.